Lord, we do ask that you would open our eyes and attune our ears that we might hear your voice coming through all the distractions, coming straight from your word. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Well, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Have you ever wondered why near-death experiences fascinate us so much? There are copious books, TV shows, movies, documentaries, countless journal articles, and nowadays, of course, endless web pages that are dedicated to providing us with some kind of glimpse beyond, right? Insights from the so-called experts or even those who claim to have made that journey beyond and have come back themselves. I think it's safe to say that we're so fascinated with these near-death experiences because we are simply so fascinated with death, period. Unless your name is Elijah the prophet, everybody has got to go through that turnstile of eternity through the portal of death. It's part of the universal condition of man. And it goes without saying, it's also a huge part of what perplexes mankind, causing no small degree of anxiety in most people, at least at one time or another. It was the famous Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, now deceased herself, who last century pioneered much of the work in this field with her seminal book entitled On Death and Dying. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have that or have read it. In that book, she adds still another word that's often associated with death, denial. Denial is the first step she observed that we normally go through when grieving a death, especially of someone close to us whom we loved and cherished. Eventually, says Kubler-Ross, denial will give way to anger. And anger gives way to bargaining in in turn, then depression, which finally gives way to acceptance. Maybe not as enthusiastically received today, but these five steps I just mentioned are nevertheless still cited in any new attempts to understand how humans deal with death. Her book is still considered a standard that you'd most likely find on any professional's bookshelf in the field of grief counseling. Well, we as Christians, we have a book too, don't we? And this book that I'm referring to, of course, is the Bible, the best-selling book in world history by far, by a huge long shot. It so happens that the Bible itself has very much to say about death and dying, doesn't it? And today we're blessed to hear from no less an authority than the creator of mankind himself. Remember how John starts his gospel speaking about the word. Apart from him was not anything made that was made, John 1. And today Jesus addresses this subject of death and dying in a very dramatic way, a way in which only he could address it. So let's explore John chapter 11. Jesus, in his unique, unique way of showing it, is not, not uh, surprising that is, once again in charge of the situation at hand. That's not a surprise for Jesus to have control of the situation. What situation is it? On his way to Bethany, then they eventually uh, are 
going to Jerusalem as their ultimate destination. But Jesus is first met by messengers sent from Mary and Martha, the sister of dying Lazarus. And they inform him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So what does Jesus do? Does he pick up his pace, race against time to get to the home of Lazarus and Bethany before he dies? No. Our text, verse 6, says Jesus does just the opposite and deliberately hangs out two days longer where he was before heading over to Bethany. Now, it's the Lord, so I guess you got to say, okay, but why? Why would he do that? This delay tactic could easily be misinterpreted by people as a callous disregard for the life of Lazarus and a disregard of the feelings of Mary and Martha, these whom he loved. It's very important to catch that little detail in verse 5. It reads, Now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Then verse 6 is the one that says, And when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. So one might be tempted to interpret Jesus' delay of action as not very loving at all, more like callousness. But the text tells you something very different. Jesus stayed behind out of love for his dear friends. So he still loved them in all this. Though they could not understand it at the time, Jesus was planning on performing something very special for all of them and by extension for us too. There is a lesson to be heard here about God's ways. And I can quote from Isaiah the prophet where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isaiah 55. As if delaying his departure to go see his dying friend Lazarus wasn't enough to create some sort of cognitive dissonance on the part of his disciples, Jesus finally makes it clear to them, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Verse 15. Don't we so often think that God should be following our timetable? That's so important. Don't we insist on playing the conductor and shaking our own baton at God, letting him know when he's supposed to come in according to our version of things? Instead of trusting him to orchestrate everything according to his good pleasure, his good purpose, and his perfect timing. God says things to us like, I'm glad I was not there. And you, my children, should be glad too once you see what I'm up to, what I'm doing. But instead of being glad, we too often give God a grumble. In this case, for Lazarus, his two sisters, the disciples and all the witnesses there at Lazarus' tomb, they have no idea what the Lord has in store for all of them. Plans to prosper them, not to harm them, plans to give them hope in future. God wants us to learn to seek him and find him too when we seek him and trust him with our whole heart, just as God's prophets told God's people in the days of old. While Jesus was approaching Bethany, then Martha goes out to meet him and gives Jesus this tragic news. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know you can, 
Ask God for whatever you want, and God will give you that thing. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, give Martha some credit here, because she essentially replies to our Lord's words with as much faith as she can muster up. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Almost sounds like Martha is reciting from the same creed that we recite. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. She had her theology straight too, it seems. It is to Martha that Jesus utters the fifth of his profound I am, his seven I am statements sprinkled through the Gospel of John. When Martha states that her brother will rise again in the resurrection, that's when Jesus declares, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Again, to her credit, to his point-blank question, Martha replies in the affirmative. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. But even though Martha here replies in the affirmative, it doesn't necessarily mean that she believes or understands to the full extent that Jesus is trying to coax out of her here at this point. For it is Martha, a few moments later, who objects to removing the stone, remember that, of her brother's tomb. Verse 39 must be read in the King James Version, which I have here. So Martha says in verse 39, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been there four days. That's a great rendering in the King James. So Martha's faith, as sincere and fervent as it was, it didn't quite go as far out as Jesus was trying to tease it. And this is where some popular Jewish belief circulating at the time about the dead, this is where that belief ties back into with, uh, back ties back in with Jesus deliberately not arriving on the scene there in Bethany until the fourth day of Lazarus being in the tomb. It seems uh, this extra-biblical notion was, uh, among certain groups, like the Pharisees believed this, but the Sadducees did not believe that the soul of the deceased, uh, deceased lingered around its recently departed corpse for a period of three days in order to give the soul an opportunity to hop back into that body if, for example, people had mistaken the entombed individual for being dead when in reality they were only gravely ill and unresponsive for a few days, then uh, there would have been one last chance for the soul to return to that recuperating body. But after four days, uh-uh, decomposition kicks in and the soul goes away saying to itself basically, there's no way I'm entering that decaying body anymore and the soul departs. This is why Mary and Martha could have been, and they probably were very likely, aware of such miracles as Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead or raising the son of the widow of Nain from the dead. The latter was being carried through the streets, kind of like a New Orleans funeral, in a coffin. Jesus goes up to the coffin and brings back the son to life. That was the widow of Nain's son. Now those were, if you will, ancient versions of near-death experiences. Those grown or almost grown children apparently 
were resuscitated by Jesus before that four-day rule kicked in. So back to Mary and Martha then. Their faith now was being tested against this common Jewish belief, which incidentally um, does work its way into written form in the Jewish Talmud, which is a commentary in the Old Testament by the Jews. But in the eyes of Mary and Martha, as truly amazing as their teacher Jesus was, his powers, they thought, were only able to heal Lazarus on the front side of this three-day window. So Jesus deliberately arrives late at the tomb to show them all that bringing back the dead from any time at all was equally within his power because as Jesus had said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus was making a very important point for them and for us. And when Jesus made that claim, there was, is, and forever will be no resurrection from the dead that he cannot perform according to his omnipotent power. This, of course, includes the future resurrection of all the dead that you read about in the book of Revelation and in the other apocalyptic passages found in Scripture. And it includes, first and foremost, his own resurrection from the dead, which really makes all the other resurrections possible to begin with. So instead of being entombed four days like Lazarus, Jesus fulfills messianic prophecy according to Psalm 36.10, quote, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. No, Jesus will rise three days being in the grave. In its context then, the context being right before Jesus himself goes into Jerusalem to die, in that context, Lazarus' death and resurrection served to point us to the greater death and greater resurrection that are forthcoming. Jesus' own innocent suffering at death at the hands of sinful men. Sinful men who demand a sign, yet who ignore completely Jesus rising, raising Lazarus from the dead. But they actually don't totally ignore that sign because in addition to Jesus now, these religious leaders add Lazarus to their hit list and they begin plotting to kill the resurrected Lazarus. Can you believe what Lazarus has to go through then with all of this? I mean, he just died, and he's got to be saying something to himself like, oh no, I come back to the land of the living only to die by murder this time? <laughs> Lord, you know what I was, I was doing just fine in heaven when you sent St. Peter to tap me on the shoulder and interrupted my harp lesson, thank you, to put me back in that ghastly mummy outfit. And actually, we don't really know if Lazarus gets martyred for Jesus or not. But we do, when we finally get to heaven, we owe Lazarus a big thank you for being a good sport to go along with all this. Probably was not pleasant to have to come back through that portal. But what were the evil religious leaders supposed to do? They had to try and get rid of Lazarus, right? He was the walking, talking evidence before the world's eyes that Jesus really is who he says he is, the resurrection and the life. Having raised three people from the dead and himself four as prophesied, Jesus now turns to us as he once did to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life, he tells us. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you 
believe this. The resurrected and ascended Jesus asks you today, do you believe? John assures us at the end of his gospel that by believing, you have life in his name. By the Holy Spirit's power then, as he works through this very word that was read to you, preached to you today, may your yes be an unequivocal, unequivocal yes. And may your amen be a hearty amen. Amen. Thank you. Now may God, God who began a good work in you bring it to completion on that day of Christ Jesus. Amen again. And as we continue our worship, we'll ask the usher to come forward for the offering.